Hi, and welcome to Marking the Roll, wherever you're listening. We're based in the Illawarra area of Australia, uh, and we're for teachers or parents or educators anywhere at all. My name's Phil Dye, and I'm your host. This is episode 20, and this episode we're looking at gender dysphoria and the rise of that in Australian schools. But before that, uh, I want to thank uh, Megan, Jason, Mark, uh, Valma, all of the people who have either joined as members of Marking the Roll or have made a donation to Marking the Roll. Um, Now, everyone who has joined or made a donation can listen to a special Members and Donors podcast that we're having uh, at the end of this week, a few days after this one comes out. And those people will all receive a link and a code in order to hear that. And that podcast will be um, interviewing Ian Luscombe from Behaviability and we'll be uh, looking at behaviour in Australian schools with special focus on the Michaela School in the UK and the tools that they use in order uh, to guarantee positive behaviour. Now, if you want to be able to hear that, just go to markingtherole.com.au and click on the little yellow coffee cup and make a donation or become a member. Markingtherole.com.au and just look for the little yellow coffee cup. This episode is on gender dysphoria, as I mentioned before. The last two episodes have been on uh, trauma-informed teaching. And it's no uh, coincidence that this episode is following those two episodes. But uh, before we dig deeply, I wanted to make it clear that uh, I am certainly not against gender transitioning. Uh, for those people who are over 18 and mature enough to make their own decisions. I do not come from a religious standpoint. As a matter of fact, I had to fill out a form this morning uh, for a hospital visit and they said, what's your religion? And I had to say, no religion, because that's true. Um, So this does not come from uh, what many critics would say is a religious um, platform. What we do question, though, is the transgender procedures and the beginning of those procedures starting in school. And throughout this episode, you're going to hear the words of Bunny, uh, now someone who's 20 years old, but who started the gender transition process at school at the age of 16. A girl with a trauma background um, who transitioned to a boy and has now detransitioned. Here's some words from uh, a recent tweet from Bunny. The trans community lied to me. When I was a teenager, I was told that this discomfort I was feeling is just that I was meant to be a boy. And that if I transitioned, I would feel great. I would feel euphoric. It would be it would be everything. But looking back, I think if someone at that time would have just said no, just told me no, just been like, no, you, we're gonna, we're gonna get you help you need. It's just a normal teenage thing to feel uncomfortable in your body. Maybe I wouldn't be where I am today. 
and I don't, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm mainly just going to talk about this for a little bit, just for myself, but also just in the hopes that someone maybe will see this and just think for a minute. Pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? My grandfather was a transvestite. Yes, he was. He lived in Newtown. He was a part of the Sydney Push. And uh, Grandma was always a bit worried when he went off dressed as a woman. And he would play piano at some of the Sydney Push functions. Now, for those listening from um, overseas or interstate, the Sydney Push was a group of very progressive men and women. A lot of academics, but there was tradespeople as well. Um who just had alternative views on things. Um, and they certainly had alternative views on transgender. Now, transgender really wasn't a thing, but being a tra- transvestite was. And uh, Evanly, Grandpa, I never saw him dressed as a woman, but my sisters did, and they said that he was quite beautiful. Um, so he would go out uh, for a couple of days and play the piano and, and no doubt drink very heavily at these Sydney push functions. So I have no problem at all with any of that. I have no problem with someone of mature age um, being um, medically transgendered. The problem is when students of uh, school age embark on that process. Students who don't have the maturity to fully understand the research and the implications for gender transitioning. My background for the past 10 years has been as a a neuroscience educator going into schools. And as a part of that, I was at the University of New South Wales in the School of Medical Sciences. Um, And I was a part of a team that made complex medical things simple. So um, complex things like the deep brain implant or atherosclerosis. We'd make it simple for school-age students, for teachers, for international delegations and for undergraduates. We weren't academics in the true sense of the world. We were educators um, and we certainly weren't doctors. However, we did do a lot of work with the brain and used EEGs to help uh, people understand how the brain worked. And I'm particularly interested in the effects of certain drugs, um, especially uh, hormone drugs on the brain of the adolescent. Uh, as I know that the brain keeps developing until we're really a little bit over 20, nearly, nearly 25. And anything we put into it, uh, other drugs, alcohol, etc., uh, changes the brain. It's also true that the prefrontal cortex, which is at the front of the the frontal lobes, is one of the last areas of the brain to develop. So we're looking at, you know, really over 20 uh, before that develops. And that area is um, responsible for executive function, decision making, uh, planning. Um, So it's a pretty important part of the brain to develop, yet it develops later than many others. Now, it's exactly this sort of information that should be given to parents, families, the student themselves, uh, to teachers, um, to ensure that everyone has all of the details that they need in making a decision on this. 
The Safe Schools Program, which was initiated by LGBTIQ groups uh, back in about 2013, uh, has been banned in most Australian schools. Uh, It was first banned for primary schools and now it has been banned full stop in most schools. Um, But gender fluidity was certainly preached in those years and we know that some schools are still using that information. I can tell you also that there is one school in Sydney where 50% of the students are transitioning. Now, this is a school for special purpose, an SSP school, uh, where a lot of the students come from trauma backgrounds. And I started to research this. And I discovered that of all people who have uh, transgendered, 69% of them have an ACE trauma, childhood trauma score of three or four. What that means is that they have had three or four trauma events happen to them as a child. Now, that can be uh, sexual abuse. It can be physical abuse. It can be neglect by a parent. It can be uh, drug abuse by a parent, depression by a parent. And in another study by Andre Schneeberger and Michael Dietti, and by the way, all of these research papers, links will be on the Marking the Roll website, it was found that in sexual minority populations, 33.5% of them had had experiences of childhood sexual abuse. So there is a big relationship between childhood trauma and uh, gender dysphoria. And even while 45 to 50% of marriages end up in divorce, when those divorces are angry, when the child is used as a pawn in court cases, then that whole experience becomes another of those ACE scores. So uh, in families where the separation has been amicable and when there's no disruption to the child, not so much, but unfortunately that's not always the case and that is an indicator of childhood trauma. Now, I'm divorced, but we were both extremely conscious of minimising the emotional impact on our daughter and it certainly can be done. Interestingly, of all those who have undergone uh, gender change procedures, only 10% of them, only 10% had not experienced childhood trauma of any sort. So it is very, very prevalent. And trauma-informed teaching tells us that we uh, have got to make uh, certain considerations for those who may have experienced trauma, those students. Um, We don't really know what that trauma was, but we have to make some special uh, changes and amendments to to our style, and that is fine. But what is bothering more and more teachers is the fact that they are teaching more and more students with trauma, and they went into teaching because they loved the kids. They wanted to make sure that the kids were safe. They wanted to see the kids progress. But this is now more and more being seen in schools. So teachers are witnessing trauma 
background children now more than ever. Now, before 2010, um, young people would cut themselves with knives or blades in order to, in a weird way, release themselves from the trauma that they were feeling. Pain created a greater pathway inside their brain away from the trauma. As disclosed in episode 19, I pulled my hair out when I was 14 simply to create a very odd escape from the uh, trauma I was having in my household. Uh, Yes, and I had four of the ACE trauma scores uh, from my childhood. All these forms of self-harm were were prevalent or more prevalent um, in the years before 2010. I would ask whether gender dysphoria has taken over from other forms of self-harm as it provides a sense of community of others. We know that uh, other students join around to support those students um, and it, it provides a social group. It seems culturally progressive and that there are some cool adults urging them to do it. It certainly provides escape um, because the, the individual becomes someone completely different. And it's something that a parent, especially a parent suffering from a sense of guilt over their child's past trauma, say you know, sexual abuse, it might be physical abuse or a messy, really uh, nasty divorce, that parent may be more likely to capitulate to the child's wishes. As I said, uh, I'm divorced. Did I feel a sense of guilt? Yes, most certainly. Did I do things in order to assuage that guilt? Uh, Yes, yes. Trips overseas? Most certainly. Uh, Yes, I did them because both my daughter and I enjoyed it. But yes, we're all surrounded with a bit of a sense of guilt when things happen that don't go the way that we thought they were going to go. So I'm not blaming parents here. We're all human. We're not perfect. And and perhaps parents are more willing to go along or be persuaded because things haven't quite gone the way they'd planned during their parenthood. Now, I know uh, saying that is not going to be popular. I'll get some hate mail for sure over the next week. But... Um, I know that it's something that teachers are discussing in staff rooms and in in cars on the way home. They're talking about this, and I know because they talk about it with me. And they send emails and messages about this very thing. And I keep thinking back to that first uh, sound grab from Bunny where she said, if only someone had just said no. Anyway, here's Bunny again. I don't know what my future will look like. I don't... I'll be here, regardless. I'm not going anywhere. But maybe some 14-year-old that's about to come out as something or demand they go on hormones will take a minute and think, maybe I should... Wait. Because I truly believe if I would have just waited until I was stable and if I had gotten the mental health treatment I needed and had just waited 
waited until I was stable enough, till I didn't have to take antidepressants, till any of this, that I would have been okay. I would have been. What a brave young woman. We're going to have a brain break now, a musical brain break. And after that, I'll be speaking to paediatrician Professor John Whitehall with over 30 years in children's medicine. I'll be asking him about the effects of puberty blockers, of hormones, of the legal implications, and what happens if a teacher feels or knows that uh, a student is transitioning because of ongoing trauma, perhaps even child sexual abuse. Um, So we'll be looking at those sorts of situations. But first, a brain break. Now, this is a terrific brain break. Um, Most or all of our brain breaks are from Illawarra musicians. And this one is from Lucas Yule. Now, I got this email from Lucas saying that uh, he's 20 years old and a keyboard player from Kiama, which is uh, in the Illawarra area of New South Wales. And he said he credits the, the, the late Kiama High School jazz band with his taste in music. And it's great to see that um, Kiama High School has produced a musician who can go out there and get their stuff on Spotify. Um, it's the first thing he's released and taken seriously, but he plays all of the instruments. And it's so fitting for this episode. It's called I Wanna Change by Lucas Yule. listening to Marking the Role, a podcast for teachers and anyone interested in education. You can keep the podcast going by becoming a member or making a small donation through Buy Us a Coffee. Just go to markingtherole.com.au and click on the yellow coffee cup. Thanks for listening. And that was Lucas Yule from Kiama with that brain break and you can find his stuff on Spotify, just look him up, Lucas Yule, or you can just go to the markingtherole.com.au uh, and look up Brain Breaks, and there you'll see him under uh, Season 3, Brain Breaks. 
Now, before we have the interview with Professor John Whitehall, I'm going to play you a little bit more from Bunny. Now, Bunny makes it very clear that's that's not her real name, um, but she is under on Twitter under One Done Bun. And here's a little bit more of what she had to say. I can't just stand by and not share my experience when there's children being pulled into this at this point. And um, I am now 20 years old. I started medically transitioning at 16. I got a double mastectomy before I was on hormones. And then a few months later, I was put on testosterone. It has now been, oh God, at least four years since then. I've been taking testosterone ever since. And earlier this year, I stopped it. Because this isn't the solution. Destroying my body my life. I I was a teenager. I didn't know better. And with that, I'll begin the interview with Professor John Whitehall. And I began by asking him if gender transitioning amongst uh, school-age students uh, was as big an issue as the media and some groups would make out. No, I'm sure it's not. Um, I, I recollect when I first became aware of this phenomenon, which was in 2015, um, having been a general paediatrician for a number of years, I polled uh, friends of mine, 28 in fact, uh, paediatricians, and I said, have you ever heard of this? What, what do you think? Cumulative years then of 931 years of practice they could only remember uh, about 12. And 10 of those they remembered because of the comorbid psychiatric condition and two because of the associated uh, sexual abuse. In those days, uh, we used to teach students and we were aware ourselves that uh, if a young person was saying they're of the opposite sex, you need to work out are they escaping from abuse at home? So from that, very rare um, prevalence of it, and that's corroborated by other studies. So it was very rare in those years, but now uh, you wouldn't know what the actual prevalence was because it's out there as a kind of a um, social contagion. Some people would say uh, it's like a psychological fad, but I don't, saying that, I, I mean it's communicative, it's a psychological issue, it's spread from one to another, but I'm not minimising the suffering uh, involved. I'm just going to butt in there and explain a term that uh, Professor Whitehall uses uh, throughout this interview, and that is the term of comorbidity. Comorbidity is when one disease exists on top of another, so the two exist simultaneously. So in this case, it could be that gender dysphoria exists together with um, extreme anxiety, um, extreme depression perhaps, but they exist at the same time. Now back to the interview. I, I'd mentioned before uh, in, in the podcast that um, self-harm in the form of cutting, in the form of 
starvation or self-poisoning or burning doesn't seem to quite be as prevalent, uh, but uh, gender dysphoria is. Do you think it's taken over perhaps as a form of uh, self-harm in order to, to escape something? It certainly is characterised by its association, its comorbid association with, uh, with, with mental disorder in, in children. Indeed, the Lancet, that, uh, that journal from England, uh, was considering just the other week, uh, why is there such a rise in anxiety and depression uh, in adolescents these days? In particular, girls. Now, that's a that's a question I can't answer. But in association with that mental instability, uh, this phenomenon has occurred. M- many of them are autistic. It's a sort of a neurodevelopmental problem. Um, that too is more common now than it used to be. So I, I don't understand the reason for this. John, in my research for this episode, uh, I searched through many articles and found that. Uh, 69% of all individuals who are transgendered had uh, a ACE trauma, childhood trauma score of three or four. That means that they had had events of childhood trauma in their life, uh, at least three or four of them. Um, That trauma could be childhood sexual abuse, it could be physical abuse, it could be uh, a parent with with depression, etc. When... A, a young person goes to transition in Australia, are these causes of it, are these um, events of childhood trauma, which may still be going on, a child could still be being abused in the family situation, are they investigated and dealt with before gender transition is considered? Well, you would hope it would be looked at in depth before you took this massive medical intervention, but I'm not comforted by that. Um, There is a report from Western Australia that I'm involved with it just at the moment. And what they are saying is that uh, normally there is this process of assessment of psychological problems, but uh, these children may be directed uh, first to the endocrinologist. So you, you can imagine they, they got the girl who, who was really insistent and the parent is going along with it. And, and you can imagine people saying, well, gee, we better maybe put her on the give in and uh, put her on the cross-sex hormones and so forth. It is not formalised that that should not occur as it is in Finland. Here, that there is freedom, as far as I can see, to cut short the diagnostic process and the sort of cognitive therapy process um, to reorientate the person uh, with the chromosomes in which, with which they were born. And John, you mentioned Finland, and by anyone's measures, Finland is a very progressive country. Uh, what are they doing differently and, and how did they get to this state of doing things differently? And I was speaking with one of their uh, psychiatrists um, just recently and that is in fact what she was saying. Uh, they were astonished by this rise of 
mentally disordered girls who had heard that they or learned that they were boys and they were looking therefore and insisting uh, that they pursue the cross-gendering pathway and when they when they looked more closely at it they were astonished at how affected these children were um, like really doing badly in life, uh, staying at home, not, not, not socialising, doing badly at school, really in a general kind of slough of, of mental disorder. And then they hear this kind of siren call that the answer is to be found in becoming a boy. And how easy is it to find doctors who will begin gender transitioning with children from an early age? Uh, there are 84 general practices and uh, well, practices in New South Wales alone, uh, which have set themselves up in order to help people transgender. And there is no age limit that I can see there at all, uh, which would restrict them. Nor, as far as I can see, is there any obligation to undergo uh, any kind of investigative therapeutic uh, psychotherapy. None. So it's like the horse has come out of the stable and, and we, now we don't even know where the horse is. So before a child is going to have uh, hormones, either estrogen or testosterone, um, their puberty has to be blocked and they take puberty blockers um, so that they're a blank slate and the, and the hormones can then do their, do their job. At what age can someone start puberty blockers? Well, the recommendations, but again, these are recommendations. These are not sort of uh, laws. The recommendation is that you would start puberty blockers when the child reached Tanner stage two of puberty, which is uh, development of breast buds in a girl um, and, and, and some enlargement of the testes in a boy. Now, that's a very, very, uh, uh, that's not rocket science to actually measure those things. The youngest one in the records uh, was was ten years old. Now that was a, a boy, a natal boy, um, and you know who knows? Did they did they feel his testicles to see whether they were a bit bigger or not? Um, he had put up a significant argument that he was a girl before that. Uh, that boy record of having uh, diagnosed or been diagnosed with mental disorder. Um, of significant amount of depression and so forth. Um, but whether they looked at the trauma or whatever, I, I don't know about the trauma. But yes, there were associated comorbidities. Uh, now, John, we heard from um, a, a transgender person who was trying to detransition, Bunny, before, um, who just re really wanted someone to say no to them when they're 16 years of age. Now, if a teacher sees this and they talk to the school council and they say, look, it's maybe a matter of putting it off for this young person for a couple of years until they can make a better decision. Um, how often does that take place, this dissuasion of the individual and just asking them to wait a little bit more, perhaps until they leave school? Well, yes, indeed. But if you're in Victoria, you run the risk of going to jail. There's a, up to 10 years incarceration plus crippling hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines if you get involved in the dissuasion of a child from affirmation uh, of the new gender. It's a very serious business, and therefore, who would want to get involved? And that's why there's a dearth of people sticking their neck out now 
for these. Uh, it's a criminal act. And, and even in Victoria, the law is that if you, in fact, say you, you sought psychological help uh, you know, from somebody in, you know, on the other side of the border, that's still uh, a criminal act for the person giving and, and for the person taking. If you take your child out of Victoria for the purposes of not going ahead with the affirmation, that is a criminal act. That's why, uh, that's why the whole thing is biased. John, when I was 15, I tried to commit suicide by taking my mother's sleeping tablets. Um, I didn't take enough of them, thank goodness. But I'm certainly glad that when I went to the hospital, the staff didn't say, oh, look, we're going to affirm your decision. You're 15 and, um, you know, it's a legitimate decision. We're going to um, just give you a a needle um, to put you out of your misery and uh, you can rest assured that your decision has been affirmed. I'm certainly glad that didn't happen. Yes, indeed. I mean, they have come to this diagnosis themselves with the help of friends, the media, and as we are saying before, the web and everything. They've come to this diagnosis. There's a certain notoriety about it these days. It certainly gets you noticed. You certainly can create a fuss at school, um, and, and you can even become the cheerleader at school, uh, and and you don't really understand the future. No no child of that age really understands the maturity of sexuality or gender of these. They say they do, but uh, we don't allow them to make decisions of anywhere near that consequence, such as tattooing themselves or driving a car or joining the army. Or buying a bottle of gin at the bottle shop. Exactly. We don't trust them with that. But here we trust them with this clamour uh, this painful clamour, because it causes all sorts of trouble if you try to give it, if you try to object to it, and therefore they get their own way. And this is a tragedy, hmm. and end up growing a beard that they regret and so forth, uh, and are sterilised in the process after the surgery. And and what then? John, I'm just going to play you the words of a, a trans activist um, with a a message on uh, Twitter. Uh, Here uh, are his words. Here are the actual facts. Fact. Medical professionals are not giving puberty blockers to children who have not reached puberty. Fact. Puberty blockers are fully reversible. John, are puberty blockers fully reversible? This is an exceedingly frustrating thing because, no, they're not reversible. And there is abundant literature um, to, to prove that. Uh, from rodents to animals. Now, people will say, well, you, you, why are you basing it on animal studies? Well, every other medical thing is based on animal study. If you give, a, a, a like a sheep, a new drug and it drops dead, well, you don't pursue that line of treatment. Now, in sheep in particular have been given puberty blockers around that peripubertal time, and then they did MRI studies on their brains, found that the limbic system, which is in the midbrain area, and it coordinates thinking and emotion and drive and reward and and leads you, therefore, to make the decisions that uh, you think are appropriate to that new assessment of yourself. That was hypertrophied in the sheep, and then, then when they then they donated themselves to science, so to speak, and people were looking under the microscope and molecular microscope, they found that many, many, many genes, the the function of genes was either 
up-regulated or down-regulated. And these were very basic constituent genes. So what had happened to the sheep that they didn't that didn't make the ultimate sacrifice, well, they were much more behaviorally disturbed. Their memory was disturbed. Did they get better? No. This was a sustained effect. So, so it had effect on the brain of the sheep? That's correct. On the limbic system in particular, and that was reflected in sustained alteration in their behaviour. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why. Uh, the children's hospitals continue to assert, like this mantra, uh, that that puberty blockers are safe and entirely reversible. When they that they, they can look up the literature, if I look up the literature, they could do it. Yes, interestingly, uh, I contacted the Royal Children's Hospital uh, Gender Service in Melbourne with the idea of talking to Associate Professor Michelle Telfer, uh, asking them similar, asking her similar questions that I would ask you. Um, but um, no, I was told that there was no one who could speak to me at this time. Um, I then contacted the Maple Leaf House in Newcastle, a transgender support service. And look, they did get back to me, but after deadline, and uh, they said they would get someone to have a chat to me um, later on this week, and uh, I can include that in uh, a follow-up episode. So at least they did get back to me. Now, what about the the sex, the cross-sex hormones, estrogen and, and testosterone? Are people given enough information about that? With regard to the cross-sex hormones, sure, the, the, the children's hospitals and others, they'll give you a whole list of complications. Yeah, you can get thrombosis, you can get other things and other things, but they never mention, and this is an odd thing, they never mention the studies by Hushoff Pol and others, uh, and they found that if you put adult males on estrogen, by MRI studies measuring, actually measuring the distance, the brain shrinks at a rate 10 times faster than aging. Full stop. Now, you never hear that. Can you imagine the fuss? And if one branch of the medical profession oh, forgot to tell you that people's brains shrink at a rate 10 times faster than aging after only four months, can you think of the fuss? So this is for a boy transitioning to a girl um, when they're given oestrogen. That was males on oestrogen. The girl in the testosterone, their grey matter, the zones increased in size. Now, nobody knows at a molecular level because you can't hold these people down and take a brain sample off them. Nobody knows what the actual effect is, but they have measured the effect on the MRI. But they don't even talk about that, you see. And what are the age limit restrictions on transitioning? The, the guidelines, the Australian guidelines put out by the Children's Hospital did away with the age limits, except they were mentioning you shouldn't have surgery under the age of 18. But essentially, um, there is... No, there is no age limit to it. And what their health department is advising, say, the 84 doctors in New South Wales who are doing it, is that you can start the hormones at basically at any age in that area um, as long as 
you have agreement by the child and by both parents. If you have contest between the parents, uh, then that has basically has to go to court. So this this boy th- thinks he's a girl, and his uh, puberty blocked, and he wants to go ahead with it. Now he's say twelve, and all the other girls around him are getting breasts. Worse, when he's fourteen, everyone's got breasts, and he hasn't, and he's the one wearing a dress. And he's the one, you see, there's the argument out there by these people, well, you're just being cruel now uh, not to give breast hormones uh, because uh, you, he's standing out as a sort of a breastless, uh, immature girl. Um, John, in Scotland, t- th- just this week, teachers have been banned from telling parents if their child is changing gender at school. So if the the student is dressing, uh, you know, is bringing other clothes to school and they're dressing as uh, a boy and, and uh, telling everyone that they're transitioning, the teachers have been stopped from talking to the parents about this. Now, I, I find that completely in- incredible because it's some sort of privacy thing from the from the student. But this is for kids as young as 12. Yes, and there was another directive a bit a year or so before that from the New South Wales Education Department was that if you saw that a child was uh, wanting to change and the parents didn't go ahead with this and therefore the child was being distressed, then it was your responsibility as a teacher to inform higher and higher authorities. And this would come under the kind of child neglect or child abuse laws. John, um, just one final question: If uh, a student uh, is is assisted to uh, transgender, and then suddenly discovers years later that there is health problems, psychological problems, that indeed they're no happier than they were before, uh, their problems still exist, and they then uh, de-transgender—I think that's the word—and uh, they decide that they're going to sue the education department, the school, and their parents for allowing them to do it from the age of 16. Um, is this something that could actually happen? Well, of course it could happen. We've been, we're, I, I wonder why it happened already. The, the, the court, court case, the High Court case in Australia, the precedent for this was by a Mrs. Whitaker against an ophthalmic surgeon, Dr. Rogers. Um, and uh, he inadvertently failed to tell Mrs. Whitaker of the one in 14,000 chance that operating on the bad eye would so influence in an autoimmune type way the good eye um, that blindness might occur. So the court declared that a, a doctor has the awesome responsibility to explain properly and fully and be satisfied that everything is explained um, of of regarding complications that might occur one in 14,000, that had they known about those things, they wouldn't go ahead with the treatment. Now, how can that possibly happen? These people are saying uh, puberty blockers are safe and entirely reversible. Well, already for 10 years, it has been known in sheep that that's not so. John, thanks for talking to us. I know we'll cop some flack for this episode, but it is the the well-being of children that we have in mind. It's a miserable, awful, sad 
problem and the children are being caught up in this and uh, my heart goes out to them because uh, they're obviously suffering children and they're going to suffer more. I mean, irreparable changes to their brain and certainly to their breast, to their body and everything like this uh, is the pathway that they are being encouraged to, to walk down. Now, that is a really, really sad thing. And that was Professor John Whitehall, a paediatrician with more than 30 years' experience. I have to make it clear again that this podcast is not against gender transitioning. For those who are going to come out and say that this podcast is transphobic, um, please listen to what we've said, that this is not anti-gender transition uh, at all. It is simply questioning gender transitioning among school students. My name is Phil Dye. You've been listening to Marking the Role. You can contact us um, by going to markingtherole.com.au and leave us a voice message, or you can simply email us markingtherole at gmail.com, markingtherole at gmail.com. I thought I'd leave the last words to two individuals who have been through the process. The first, Ollie London, one of the most famous transgender um, individuals in the world who has now detransitioned, and the very last word to Bunny. Thanks for listening. I was just kind of, I guess I was having an identity crisis or gender dysphoria, mm. which a lot of kids have these days. So I just want to speak up to try and raise awareness that, you know, kids should not be transitioning. It shouldn't be this easy to get medical care for this kind of stuff. You shouldn't be able to walk in and leave with hormones that same day. This isn't the solution. Destroying my body, my life. I, I was a teenager. I didn't know better. I was a child.